Access matters. Access matters. Access matters. Access matters. Access matters. A podcast of Ira with Janine Stanley. Episode 8, Access in the World of Work, featuring Dan Fry and Joy Mistovich. I'm Janine Stanley, Ira's Director of Customer Success and Engagement. In this episode of our coverage of National Disability Employment Awareness Month here at Access Matters, we have some stories for you. I'd like to introduce you to a few people who are very close to our product, but also have a wide range of experience with accessibility in general. Because we believe in the abilities and capabilities of blind and low vision people, Ira has a promo called Job Seeker. And this promo allows people to prepare things like their resume, an outfit for an interview, etc., to enter the job market with confidence. When I asked our customers to let us know their experience with the Job Seeker promo, we received this note from Eric Duffy. I often use the job access offer to search for jobs online. Could I do that myself? Absolutely, but an IRA agent can do it much faster. I used it to apply for my current job. An agent could ensure that my submission was formatted correctly. I have just completed my first year with opportunities for Ohioans with disabilities. I am the accessibility coordinator in the Division of Employer and Innovation Services. Eric Duffy. Eric is just one of the people who have benefited and who have actually been able to secure employment. And our Job Seeker promo was just part of the many types of access tools that they used. In fact, having a lot of tools in your toolbox is going to be addressed by our first guest, Mr. Dan Fry. Welcome today to Access Matters, Dan Fry. Dan is the Director of Employment and Professional Development Services with the National Federation of the Blind. Hello, Dan. Good morning. I ask everybody who comes on the podcast a couple standard questions and to let everyone get to know a little bit about you. Let's hear the backstory of Dan Fry. Who is this person? Oh, he's a simple uh, country lawyer who has had the good fortune of getting to live in various places across the United States. Uh, I was born in the outskirts of Austin, Texas, in a little suburb called Georgetown, so that for the first three years of my education, I could acquire skills of blindness at the Texas State School for the Blind after which time I was mainstreamed and uh, went to public school through the sixth grade. Then at age 12, my parents passed away uh, and we were sent to live with my paternal grandparents in the low country of South Carolina in Horry County. I was and had been losing my vision since I was born from uh, deteriorating glaucoma and cataracts. And so I was introduced to Braille, even though I still had some vision, to orientation and mobility and a number of other things. But mostly, I was introduced to blind people and a community who believed in my capacity. Fortunately, I found good mentors in the blind community, 
and a principal at the School for the Blind who became something of an unspoken guardian and champion on my behalf. I went to undergraduate school uh, at a small private liberal arts college in South Carolina, Erskine College, in a quaint little town called Due West, South Carolina, where I earned my degree in history with a minor in government. And immediately upon graduation, I went to the University of Washington School of Law in Seattle. That's quite a move. It was a big move. I knew that I didn't want to remain in the South uh, for a variety of reasons. And I knew that there was a strong constitutional law program at the University of Washington. So I decided to explore the Pacific Northwest, graduated with my Juris Doctorate there, and like many of us who are blind or have low vision, I then experienced what I call sort of the metaphorical walk through the desert of unemployment. Despite having credentials that should have equipped me to find uh, a job relatively quickly, after about three years of earnest looking for work, I finally accepted a position with the Social Security Administration in a position for which I was overqualified serving as a service representative. After about three years of mastering what I could do there, I went to work on behalf of the American Federation of Government Employees as a union representative. No matter how you try to comport yourself professionally, if you affiliate with the bargaining unit, the likelihood is that you're going to find yourself on the other side of any opportunity uh, of securing upward mobility. I found a position being solicited by the Association of Blind Citizens of New Zealand, the ABCNZ, and I went home and told my wife somewhat cheapishly that I had applied for a position to be the national advocate for the Association of Blind Citizens of New Zealand. And she smiled at me and humored me and said, good luck with that, sweetie. I don't know why they would want someone who was from America to go over there and be their advocate. But three months later, we were both acquiring passports and work visas and canes and cash in hand. We were ready to make our way around the world, knowing no one. I think I see a pattern here, Dan, with these big moves and big cultural <laughs> shifts here. This is great. Exactly. And the last thing I was doing before I returned to the United States was working with the Minister of Disability on the country's decision to adopt uh, a modified currency that was going to be fully accessible to blind people, even, even its paper currency. Now, I have to ask, I, did they actually get that uh, tactile currency adopted and, and they, working? They did. Oh, they did. There may be hope yet for us. There may be hope, <laughs> yes, indeed. I came back to the U.S. and went to work on the national staff then of the National Federation of the Blind, where I held successive 
uh, management positions as the manager of affiliate action advocacy and training uh, where we worked on membership development advocacy skills a number of types of training i then migrated over because of my love of writing to the braille monitor where i made my way up uh, to serving as editor of the braille monitor the flagship publication of the nfb in 2010 for a variety of reasons i left the work of the nfb to go to work for the U.S. Department of Education in the Rehabilitation Services Administration, where I was the national manager of the Randolph-Shepard program, supervising the, 50, the 49 state vocational rehabilitation agencies that have a, have a Randolph-Shepard program, and I spent three and a half years in that role. And then I landed the job of my dream, which was to be the director of a state VR agency that was blindness specific. And I served as executive director of the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Vision Impaired from October 2013 to 2018. With life as it is want to be, there was a change in political administration and so my opportunity sadly ended in October of 2018, and I spent a, a wonderful year um, at IRA serving as the Director of Public Sector Engagement and Strategy. In July of 2019, I took advantage, having not lost my interest in running a VR agency, to accept the role as administrator of services for the blind and vision impaired, but in a combined agency. So I had a division of my own, but I was not the director of the combined agency in New Hampshire. And in March of this year, after about a 13 year absence, I returned to the NFB as its director of employment and professional development programs. I am married. <laughs> I'm married to my wife, Renee West. We live in our home in uh, Concord, New Hampshire. I am privileged to be able to work remotely for the Federation. Uh, coming to Baltimore, our headquarters, about once a week, every six weeks or so, and otherwise working uh, from our home office or my home office in Concord. I find it interesting always to hear about um, people's causes of blindness, and you and I have the exact same cause of blindness. So <laughs> that's um, uh -huh. who knew. So the other general question that I ask everyone, because access matters, if you had to define the term access, how would you define it? I would define the term access as a means by which everybody, despite his, her, or their characteristics, would be able to successfully acquire information uh, using whatever alternative techniques, and that this would be a universal ability. 
So for people who are blind, access would would be the ability to access written material. I think I think the barrier to written material is the largest access challenge that those of us who are blind or have low vision experience. But you know, access applies across the board and transcends many disciplines, including transportation, places of public accommodation, and the like. But for me, it's very much as an attorney and as someone who has needed to have access to a lot of information, it's been a matter of acquiring access to to written material. And we've been fortunate that the evolving digital world has afforded us an opportunity to have more access to the world than many of our ancestors who were blind or had low vision enjoyed during their time. I think you have touched on something really important that, again, I I hear something different each time I ask one of the people featured on the podcast here about access and being able to fulfill your professional duties and responsibilities is a huge part of access, I think, that we don't even think about because I think so many people are are used to that general, oh, we want everyone to be able to use everything. But then we forget that there are some parts of our lives that really maybe have a different weight when it comes to what we need to get done or how we do it. And so needing some extra things or being able to use some extra extra tools, I guess, is um, just hugely important for a lot of folks. Absolutely. I do a lot of traveling when I'm not traveling with my spouse. I mean, Ira has been a means for me to guarantee that my clothes were well matched. It was a wonderful way for me to capture images that I was able to share with my sighted friends and family when I went on my very first cruise uh, when I was 50 years old. Let's talk about opportunities and the employment landscape for people who are blind or have low vision. What do you think is, I hate to start with the negative, but what do you think is the biggest obstacle for folks these days who are either looking for employment or maybe looking to advance their careers? Janine, I think there are two primary obstacles based on what I have observed as the director of two state vocational rehabilitation agencies that cater primarily to people who are blind or have low vision. And I think those obstacles involve two things. First of all, despite all of technological advancement that we have enjoyed, technology is evolving at such a rate that despite the concerted effort of allies in the software field and the like, Uh, We still find ourselves, I think, behind when it comes to the ability to access as comfortably as we would like components of our job. And I think that's particularly true for 
those really brilliant people who I have such admiration for, who are in the STEM fields, who love um, science, technology, engineering, and math, and want to be competitive in those arenas, even in the in just the basic mid-level arenas. I mean, you find blind and low vision people employed in relatively high-powered occupations, or you find some of us employed, um, sadly, still in repetitive, non-integrated um, populations. But you don't usually see a blind or low vision person in those what I call middle jobs. You don't see someone at a checkout counter at McDonald's, largely because the cost of the accommodation is at that type of employment almost as expensive as the pay you would receive. And so you have to you have to aspire for bigger things or lower things. And I think the limited access that we have by virtue of the cost of accommodation and the limited access that still exists keeps us uh, prohibited from effectively entering what I call the massive middle opportunities uh, of work. And, and I think that's changing gradually, but I, I think we have a long way to go before we're going to see um, a blind or low vision person serving fancy coffees at Starbucks or doing things that are just what I call middle of the road jobs that support people. And I think the second challenge, in addition to having trouble accessing the middle way, continue to be just challenges with public perception about what we as people who are blind or have low vision can do. Despite the hard work and commitment of both consumer organizations of the blind, we still have miles to go before we sleep, before we can get the world to fully comprehend that our blindness need not be a reason for us not to be given an opportunity, that we can be effective caregivers to the elderly population that are being needed as the silver tsunami makes its way across our country, or to children in daycare. So the challenges are two in number in my view. They have to do with access to jobs and access to the middle way. And then second, to continued public misperception about our capacity to do those jobs. I find it ironic, actually, in this labor market where so many of those middle way kind of positions are available in droves because we just don't have the folks to fill them as a result of COVID, as a result of a number of things. And yet, in the disability community in general, we still have such a high unemployment rate. 
That just amazes me. Now, that's, I think, changed a little bit. However, I want to hold out hope. And that's where I'm going to come to the next question. What do you think is the most positive aspect of looking for a job for somebody who is uh, blind or has low vision or any disability these days? I think there is absolutely cause for hope and optimism. It may seem slow in coming. It may seem like the opportunities are limited, and they are, and it is slow in coming. But I do think that we have accumulated an array of techniques and a corpus of knowledge that should equip us to help blind people find employment in whatever job area or discipline that is consistent with both their ability, their interest, and their aptitude. There are two things I think that we can do as we develop innovative employment programs to help move the needle and expedite the progress toward a world that is going to be more accepting of blind and low vision people having success in the job market. We have the ability now, if people are willing to take the time to invest in themselves and acknowledge that any of us from the most talented blind or low vision person to the least capable one, because we we represent the full microcosm of the world uh, as a community of blind people, but that we all need comprehensive non-visual blindness training. Because if we can do things non-visually, then we can do things anywhere and everywhere. And it doesn't mean that those with residual vision can't take advantage of the sight they possess and use it as frosting on the cake. If you can do things non-visually, you can succeed in, in virtually anything because the most successful blind people are problem solvers. I think the most important of those blindness skills are three things, social or emotional intelligence, literacy through Braille. It is unequivocally true that 95% of those people who are blind or have low vision who are employed, there's a correlation between those people being Braille readers. So social and emotional intelligence, access to Braille, and then access to technology and travel. And if you can access technology, if you can travel, if you are literate and you are socially, socially and emotionally intelligent, there really aren't things that you can't do. If you're willing to be a problem solver, if you're willing to be curious, If you were giving advice to someone, 
or resources to someone, what would you tell them today? Let's say they have had their blindness training and they're ready to go, or they've had whatever disability type of training and accommodation that they need, they're ready to go. What would you tell them or what experiences could you tell them about that may help them in their job search? I would tell them this, that all the training in the world that will be absolutely critical to their success will be helpful, but that the most helpful thing you can have as a person who is blind or has low vision is a community of compassionate, loving, supportive, caring, empathetic, authentic, blind and low vision people with whom to connect as either peers or as mentors, but people who have walked this road before you are going to be able to tell you where the pitfalls are. They're going to be able to tell you when there's going to be a quick curve in the metaphorical road ahead. They're going to be able to tell you what they've experienced when they were challenged as an attorney in successfully conducting a voir dire, selecting a jury. They're going to be able to talk to you about their experience with being a teacher. And they're going to be able to infuse in you a belief in yourself that obviously you'll acquire and gradually develop as you succeed and do the job yourself. But you're going to get that faster and you're going to get it with a greater degree of certainty if you immerse yourself in a community. I think you have to understand that it's important that you give back to a world that has traditionally decided that you always need to be the recipient of benefit. And that final thought about advice, I think, is a great one because being able to give back, no matter how you do it, really, really does instill that feeling of agency and that feeling of uh, autonomy in you know a, a population that typically, as you said, is you know, accustomed to or becomes accustomed to society giving us things. The really great thing, though, as you mentioned about communities, is that with the online presences, presences, yeah, with the online spaces that we can now access, we've got all kinds of communities out there. There's, you know, all sorts of groups on Mastodon, on Facebook, on whatever level of technology, even the good old email list that (laughs) we can still take part in. And I think that really, just the opening up of technology through email lists back in the early 90s was just a huge thing for me in finding other people, learning about their experiences, things like that. Absolutely. And Ira, I think, really gives you access to that community that you wouldn't otherwise have. Not because you can't get along without some visual interpretation, but because it renders the barrier to immersing yourself into that community much less difficult. And 
so I I tend to think of IRA not just as a tool for accessibility, but a tool for life that can truly have transformative change values that make me much more self-sufficient and 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 reliant and able to be competitive in in whatever job market I choose to be in. Now let's say you are talking to employers and I know you do quite a bit. What what do you what advice do you give them about hiring somebody with a disability? The advice that I give to employers is um, pretty simple. It is that blind people and those with low vision come with the same set of talents that do those have full sight, that to deny themselves the opportunity to interview uh, a segment of the entire community, uh, blind people, uh, is to deny themselves a chance to get to know uh, an entire community that has representatives in it who can perform at the highest levels of any number of diverse employment types. I tell them that because many of us have struggled to secure integrated competitive employment, that while hopefully we will get to the point where we feel equally as confident to jump to the next professional level and opportunity, that many of us will be a more reliable employee in the long term, because if we can find an employer that values us and sees what we have to offer, that we will be a much more loyal uh, group of potential employees to have about, just because we already can empathize with the hardships that sometimes accompany finding good work. I also tell them that we are good in terms of all of the advantages that concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion bring to any workplace, that we represent uh, an underrepresented community and that we will bring uh, a culture that will add richness to their employment environment, and that that is something that we that we offer for free. It comes with part of being part of a marginalized community. How can people contact you, and what are you going to be up to through the end of the year with the? office that you hold within NFB? I can be reached at the Federation at our national phone number, uh, 410-659-9314. I'm at extension 2393. And via email at D as in Daniel, Fry, F as in Frank, R-Y-E, dfry at nfb.org. And in terms of 
what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be helping the NFB continue its existing employment programs, which involve running virtual job fairs that bring together employers and employees. I'm going to be involved in strengthening some national training programs that I think will better equip people who are blind or have low vision with the skills that they're going to need to succeed. And in the fullness of time, we will develop a number of new programs that I think will enhance the professional training of those who work on the front lines of blindness instruction, either at the teacher of the vision impaired or teacher of blind students level, K through 12, or in terms of training qualified personnel uh, at the post-secondary level, so that those who are entering uh, the array of professional opportunities that exist in the blindness training community come in better qualified with higher caliber capacity to deliver positive services to us. And so we're going to do as many things as we can to be as cutting edge and as innovative as possible to partner with as many people who are interested in working closely with an organization of progressive blind and low vision leaders and who understand that the true gem of employment is the self-confidence and the belief that you get to have in yourself once you've secured a job that pays you well, gives you a sense of purpose, and introduces you to having a role in the community where you live, politically, economically, and otherwise. Employment is for most people the key to liberty and the key to accessing society. Thank you so much, Dan. That is a beautiful way to end. We thank you for joining us and for your insights, and we look forward to working with you in the future. It's been my pleasure, Jeannie. You can learn more about Dan's work with the National Federation of the Blind at https colon slash slash nfb.org. You can email Dan at dfry at nfb.org. That's d-f-r-y-e at nfb.org. You can call him at NFB's national office, 1-401-659-9314, extension 2393. Let's take a look at an example of what access in the workplace can get for you in terms of jobs. We're going to meet Joy Mistovich, who is certainly a friend of Ira's and no stranger to accessible technology, in her job at the Butler Museum of American Art. I'll let Joy tell you about her job title, but part of her work is crafting new accessible experiences to bring people with disabilities of all types into the museum and into the museum experience, not only as something that the general public can enjoy, but a career. Here's Joy. I'm a writer, researcher, technologist. 
visual artist and huge disability arts advocate, not only for the arts, but just in the community as well, deeply passionate about promoting and assisting with the disability community and advocacy as well. You are currently employed. Tell us a little bit about your job. I'm currently the education department assistant and digital UX accessibility specialist at the Butler Institute of American Art in Youngstown, Ohio. And actually it, it was the first museum in the country to specifically house American artwork. And also it was one of the first couple of museums that actually rolled out a special technology wing and art and new media. With your background, how would you define the term access? For me, I consider access not just as a privilege, but a human right in the fact that everyone should deserve the opportunity to thrive and flourish in whatever capacity they're most suited for, whatever skill set or gifts or talents they have, whether it's in the physical and digital space. As we're talking this National Disability Employment Awareness Month, in your job search, you used one of the IRA promos. Can you tell us a little bit about what parts of our Job Seeker promo were most helpful to you? What parts did you use in your job search? Well, first and most importantly, agents and I worked together to update and edit my resume with the newest information at that time a couple years back and then after that we did just countless amounts of different job searches and i was looking at applications and just trying to figure out some jobs that i could possibly apply for and interview for for more than several months it, it took a long time actually in my situation, it was pretty different compared to the average person in general, because after applying for jobs and trying to interview, and then at some points, a company or individual might say, okay, well, I have the skills and highly qualified, but just wasn't selected for the specific position. So after, after all of that, I decided I wanted to actually work with agents to do a lot of research and as far as the museum field. And I wanted to be able to somehow craft a job that where I could feel that I would truly impact and make a difference in the lives of not just blind individuals, but those with and without disabilities in the Youngstown community and beyond. So agents and I, we worked on researching various museum positions in the accessibility field and so then actually decided to create a job proposal for the museum director at the Butler. and. So I came up with this whole proposal and 
so then he interviewed me and I showed him my proposal and shared with him my resume as well. And after that, he was extremely impressed. And originally, well, this was before I actually started working at the Butler. He said originally maybe I could work part-time as a digital accessibility specialist at the museum, but after just short time later, before I was hired, he thought, well, he decided to hire me full time. So then I ended up becoming in the education department assistant and digital accessibility specialist at the Butler. And I just, I just love my job so much. And I love your descriptions of some of your job duties and some of the, the things that you get exposed to being at a museum, having to look at all of the incoming exhibits for accessibility and things like that. I love the concept, though, of really researching and then making your own job proposal and saying, hey, you know what, right. you need this, <laughs> folks at the Butler. And the Butler is, in fact, an IRA access location, right? So definitely, um, anybody who's in the Youngstown area or you can go online also and check out their digital offerings, uh, you can use IRA and an agent to do exactly what Joy does and take a look at that artwork, get it described for you, all of those uh, really interesting things. Is there anything that you would say, any advice you would give to, first of all, an employer, somebody who really wants to fulfill that DEINA component, but they don't know where to start? What should, what should they know? Well, they have to, at least if they're not as familiar, they should first start by doing, not just doing research, but whatever local community they're from, they should just contact members of the disability community and just start researching and looking at specific websites that incorporate the positions or the the employers that individuals with disabilities are in, whether it's a museum or a college or a university or a specific business. So maybe then they could gain a greater understanding of how to incorporate accessibility. And they should also learn about just the basic understanding of the, it's called the universal design principles and universal design for learning is just specific aspects for not just individuals with disabilities, but anyone to be more successful and have the, capacity to learn through various techniques and methods and web accessibility as well, as I uh, yes. mentioned, so at least they can understand the basic framework. Uh, yes, and then hire someone like you, right? <laughs> <laughs> Now, for anyone out there who is seeking a job, what advice would you give to them? Well, I would say it just, it always depends on the situation, and it takes a lot of patience, especially if the individual's applying for a job or they haven't worked in a while. It just takes patience and integrity and innovation, especially within the disability community and the blind community, because especially in that fact, just I've learned to be 
innovative and forward thinking because the, there's a huge stereotype that exists if various individuals aren't familiar with individuals with disabilities, whether they're blind or whatever other disabilities they have, because they, they believe sometimes that we're not as capable as the typical individual that doesn't have a disability, but they have to come to the realization that those with and without disabilities are just as competent and qualified, but we might just accomplish various tasks in more unique ways. And we, and that employer has to just figure out and collaborate with the disability community and non-disabled community to work together and just create a world that is more inclusive and accessible and that's better than how we found it so i like that and i like the idea of if you're out there and you do belong to maybe a disability based organization and you're looking for a job that maybe you invite an employer that you're interested in to one of the meetings i you know i i really like that kind of interaction where you talked about you know learn about the community employers and as job seekers, we can also do that too, kind of uh, do the reverse. A final question, because you are doing some really cool stuff involving digital art. Can you tell people right. how to find you on social media and how to follow you? I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter, but uh, really more recently, I haven't used Twitter that often, but just Facebook and LinkedIn. So for Facebook, anybody can just type in my name, just Joy Mistovich, and it'll come right up. And the same is true for LinkedIn. I don't have any, I mean, it's just my name. It's not any special gotcha. um, like hashtag or anything like that. <laughs> for everyone, we will put Joy's contact information in the show notes, including her Facebook page. You are a grad student at Ohio State, and uh, how far are you from getting your degree? It's hard to believe that last fall I was accepted at, at, at Ohio State back then. So I'll, gra I'll be graduating next year at the beginning of August. It's already my fourth semester. It's so amazing. Outstanding. <laughs> Always happy to promote another Buckeye. Well, thank you so much, Joy, for being a part of Access Matters for our National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Learn more about the Butler Institute of American Art and Joy's work in accessibility at https colon slash slash butlerart.com. You can email her at joymisto at gmail.com. That's J-O-Y-M-I-S-T-O at gmail.com. That's all for this episode of Access Matters. Coming in future episodes, we are going to talk all about access in government. So stay tuned. If you have questions or comments about the show, you can email us at accessmatters at ira.io. That's A-C-C-E-S-S-M-A-T-T-E-R-S -S -E -E at A-I-R-A dot I-O. You've been listening to Access Matters with Janine Stanley. This podcast is a production of Ira Tech Corp. To learn more about visual interpreting, visit our website 
http colon slash slash ira.io or email us at access at ira.io.